1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, Paul writing, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says that I am of Paul and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church that he had planted that has kind of turned sideways in the months or years since he was there among them. They have gone from being an entity that was planted and fixed to be God-centered and Christ-centered, and it has become man-centered and human-centered. And the result of that, getting the eyes off of God and onto the human leaders and all of that, is that it has produced within the congregation of Corinth divisions, envyings, strivings, competition, uh, a spirit of uh, jockeying for power and a worldly influence upon the Christians there and thus the church that is supposed to be the expression of heaven upon the earth has in large part just become another organization like any other organization of man, a club, uh, a place where people would come together and share ideals or a philosophy or a place even of entertainment where personalities are, are put forward and, 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 and it's just a gathering. It's become very human and the church is in danger because of that, of losing its influence in its culture and also losing its glory, which is the very presence of God within that uh, church itself. Now, where Paul left off in this uh, discussion in chapter 2 is that he talked to them about the wisdom of God that God has provided for them and that God wants them to enjoy and to have within their lives and how they have traded that wisdom for a worldly wisdom that cannot ultimately fulfill its purpose. And so Paul is discussing overall in these three chapters the consequences of being man-centered and, and, and the division, having the division that man-centeredness brings within the church. And so they sacrificed the power of God within their lives, chapter 1. And then they're sacrificing the wisdom of God within their lives, chapter 2. And then tonight we see how they sacrifice uh, the, 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 the wealth of God or the riches of God within uh, their lives uh, as he kind of wraps it up. We, talk, we left off talking about wisdom, and it really ties into the study that we uh, are, are seeing tonight. And um, there was quite a discussion this week that I had with, with several of you um, about the difference between knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Is that, are those three words kind of interchangeable? We see them throughout the Bible, but what's the, uh, what's the deal? Where does, where's the common ground between the three? And, and that distinction is very important. Uh, for us. Knowledge, when we read of that, or having knowledge, is basically just facts. It, it would be like if you just kind of learned math facts and you just knew that two plus two is four and, and you have no other um, you know, attachment to that. All you know is that that is a fact, that that is a truth. If we take it to the Bible, we could just take any command or sentence of God that he uh, gives, like, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
you know, or thou shalt not steal. That's a fact. And so you could just know that. It's something that you could tuck away within your mind and you just know that that's something that you're not supposed to do. But when you add understanding to knowledge, what you get then is reason. And so now I understand why that knowledge is. And so two plus two is four. To give you understanding, I say two plus two equals four. And you go, oh, okay. That was just something I memorized, but now I understand how that works out in real life. That's knowledge. Take it to the Bible. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Knowledge is the command. Understanding is when you've lived a little bit of life and you've watched people violate that commandment or you've watched people obey that commandment and you've seen the outcome of it within their lives. And so now you understand something because you know what adultery does to a person and to a marriage and to another person and then to a family and then to children and then successive generations and to a society at large. And when understanding is coupled then with the knowledge, there's depth to it. It comes to life. And so that's understanding. Now add wisdom to that. Wisdom is knowing how to use your knowledge and your understanding to make good decisions within your life. That's what wisdom is. And so if you know that two plus two is four and you understand it and someone comes up to you at work and they see that you know you have a nickel and they have four pennies and they come up to you and they say, hey, I've got four, I'll give you four pieces of money for your one piece of money. Because you have understanding, you can now apply wisdom to that and say, that's not a good deal. You're exercising wisdom. And so the same thing, then carry it into the Bible. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know that that's the command. Now you have some understanding in terms of what that means and what it does when I, when I do it. So now what is wisdom in all of that? Wisdom is doing everything that I can never to put myself in a place where that can be a part of my life. And so what I'm doing is I'm bringing everything else I know about life and about flesh and about people, and I'm adding it to my understanding so that I can make wise decisions and conduct my life in a wise way so as that I don't ruin it by violating a commandment. And so that applies to everything that God says. There's knowledge, that's the fact. Then there's understanding, that's the reason. And then there's wisdom, that's how it affects my life so that I'm either blessed in the obedience of a thing or I'm not ruined <laughs> by, by, by my um, futility or failure uh, to go in and do it. And so they had traded the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the world. And that's where we left off with Paul. And the result of that, the outcome of all of that, is that Paul now indicts them at the beginning of the chapter. And he says that you guys are infants in the Lord that you're just babes in Christ, that you're at a place in your spiritual progress where you should be much further along in the things of God and in the wisdom of God than you are. And it goes back to the decision that you made when you decided to get your eyes off of God and to get your eyes onto humans. And the fruit of that is that you guys are infants in Christ. Now you say, okay, this is new to me. All right, so there's different levels in this thing. You can be a baby in Christ, or you could be a child in Christ, or you can be mature in Christ. You know, how in the world does all of that work? 
Well, you can measure where you're at based upon what Paul says in these four verses. Because what he does is he gives to us three indicators that you are a babe in Christ. And so you can look at the things that he says in these verses, and he says it three times, twice in verse uh, three, he says, for you are yet carnal. And then again, he says it in verse three, he says, you are yet carnal. And then he gives to us the qualifier. So how can you know if you're fleshly? And that's all that carnal means. Carnal just means that you're fleshly, you're worldly, you're still kind of like, you know, newborn in the whole thing, and you haven't really come into any kind of spiritual depth in your relationship with Christ. Well, how do I know? Number one, you're an infant in Christ if all you feed upon is the milk of the word of God. That's what Paul says. He says, I fed you with milk, but not with meat because you're, you weren't able then and you're still not able now. You say, well, what is the milk of the word? Well, what is milk? Milk is basically food that you eat that's already been digested by someone else or something else, you know, depending on where you classify animals in the someone or something category. But that's what milk is. And so if you are a Christian and, and your understanding of scripture can only come as someone else teaches you what they have already processed and digested in a context like we are doing right here, then that is considered spiritual milk. And if you're one who says, well, I can't go to the Bible by myself and get anything out of it, I don't know how to do that, then that is an indication that you are immature in your walk with the Lord. That every single one of us should come to a place where we have the ability to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, go to the Word of God, ask the questions, who, what, where, when, why, look at it in terms of the knowledge of a text and then seek for the understanding of a thing and then ask for the wisdom of a thing and apply it to our lives. And we should be able to do that on our own and, and self-feed. And we, we expect that of our kids and God expects that of us, that we would grow into a maturity in the things of God. You say, well, how deep can it go? We look at whoever wrote the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews chapter five, the same terminology is used about milk and meat. And an example of, of, of meat is given where the writer of Hebrews takes one verse from Genesis and then one verse from Psalms 110 that you would think have no connection whatsoever other than one common word. And he builds three chapters of doctrine about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ from those two verses. That's meat. And it says that when meat is a part of your steady Christian diet, the fruit of that is that you're going to have your senses exercised to be able to discern what's good and what's evil in this life. You'll be able to make good decisions within your life. And God has provided everything that we need in order for us to do it. It's just up to us to grow, to practice, to digest, to eat, so that we become mature. But if we don't, then we are infants in Christ. The second mark that there's an immaturity in the Lord is given to us in verse three. He says, whereas there is envying and strife and divisions, are you not yet carnal and walk as men? And so the second sign that you are an infant in Christ, that you're immature, is that your spiritual life is lived on the horizontal plane and not on the vertical axis. And what that looks like is that your spiritual life is much like in the world where you're constantly looking across the aisle or you're looking at others and you're measuring and gauging your spiritual progress or your spiritual growth based upon what you see in others. 
And it comes by way of envy, wherein you're looking at people and you're saying, well, I wish I was like them in the body of Christ. Or why do they get to do what they're doing in the church? Or why are they serving in that way? Or why is God using them? That's envy spiritually. It comes in the way of strife. Strife is striving or competing with other Christians for who's more mature. I know more than you. I'm holier than you. I pray more than you. I read more. I go to more services than you. And there's a competition in us as we look across the church and we kind of establish in our minds a hierarchy of who the spiritual people are and who the not so spiritual people are and where we fall in that. That's that, what that means. And then, of course, then the divisions, which is the natural byproduct of that, that if there's envying and strife, then we're going to classify and we're going to say, well, these are the real Christians. They're the committed ones. And these are the carnal ones. And this is, these are the ones that are going to get raptured. And these are the ones that are going to get left behind. We start to do that. And Paul says, if that is your mentality and the way that you see the body of Christ, then that is a sign that you are a spiritual babe, an infant in Christ Jesus. You're not seeing things correctly. And then the third sign that he gives um, in verse four is um, that he says, for while one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, he says, are you not carnal? And so number three, the third uh, indicator that you are immature in Christ is that your spiritual identity or your spiritual quality is measured by your pastor or your teacher. You say, okay, well, I listen to Ravi Zacharias. And since I listen to Ravi, well, then I obviously am way leaps and bounds beyond just the normal, ordinary person that would listen to him and their head would be spinning because they wouldn't grasp the first thing that he's saying. Or I follow Charles Stanley and everyone knows that if you follow him, you're doing okay because his ministry is worldwide. It's international. And we begin to measure where we're at in Christ based upon who we listen to, who we learn from, or where we go to church. And if that is for us the indication of where we are or how we're doing, then Paul says you're still in a state of spiritual infancy and that you need to grow up. Well, how do we do that? How do we grow up and move on from those elementary things and move on into maturity? He's going to answer that question as we go through the chapter. But the question remains in all of that is that if it's not about Paul, if it's not about Apollos, if it's not about Cephas, then... What is the purpose of leaders in the body of Christ? What is the purpose of pastors and teachers and people that we would listen to and radio ministries and people that write Christian books and commentaries? What's the purpose of all of that if we're not to give our allegiance or measure our progress based upon those things or have our eyes upon men? And that's the question that Paul answers as we move then into verse five. Notice what he says. He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? Those are very good questions. We know who Paul was. Paul was the one who started the church that he is addressing. He is the one that went on the journeys that established the churches in the New Testament era. Paul is the apostle that wrote most of the letters that we have in the New Testament that lay for us the foundation of the doctrine. We understand and know who Paul was. He was a missionary and an apostle that God used in the early church to lay the foundation for the church. That's who Paul was. But who was Apollos? Apollos was the pastor, probably the head spiritual leader in the city of Corinth in the days after Paul departed. When Paul came to Corinth, he met there a couple 
whose names you've probably heard before. Their names were Priscilla and Aquila. And you probably only know those names because they rhyme and it rolls off the tongue. And they became Paul's companion. They worked side by side. They were tent makers just like Paul was. And when Paul left the city of Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila went with Paul across the Aegean Sea back into Asia Minor where they went with Paul to the city of Ephesus. And at that time, there was a church there that had been formed and Paul visited but didn't want to stay. So Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and he himself then moved on and went to Syria and around where, wherever the Lord was leading him. But once Priscilla and Aquila were established in Ephesus, along comes now this young, brilliant scholar named Apollos. And we're told that he came from Alexandria in Egypt. We're told that he was very eloquent, that he could express himself well, and that he was mighty in the scriptures. And so here comes this young man to Ephesus, and he's with them for a little while, and Priscilla and Aquila see in him that he's got a lot of potential, but they also see that he's lacking, that there's some holes in his theology and who he is as a Christian. And so they take him alongside, and they disciple Apollos a little bit. They explain grace to him. They make sure his understanding of the cross is correct and that he has those things right. And then Apollos feels led at that time to leave Ephesus and then go into the region of Achaia, which is where Corinth was. And so Apollos then comes to the city of Corinth and it tells us in the book of Acts that he helped them much who believed through grace. So Apollos goes into Corinth now and God strategically moved a man who would resonate with that culture in a way that the Apostle Paul didn't. He was educated, he was eloquent, he could speak well, and that resonated with the Corinthians. They were Greek, they were into the orators, into the philosophers, and so God sent them someone that they could receive from in a very simple way. But it wasn't long before the eloquence and the charisma of Apollos began to grow on them to the point where they would say, well, listen, when Apollos talks, I understand it. When Apollos speaks, there's conviction. When Apollos ministers, there's growth within my life in a way that I never experienced under Paul. And so what they did in taking a gift that God gave them is that they came to the wrong conclusion with that gift, which was that Apollos is better than Paul. And that was the source where the divisions began in all this thing. And so Paul now brings all of that full circle back around and he puts things in perspective for them. And he says, who then is Paul and who then is Apollos? And here's the answer. He says, ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Here's the answer, and here's the first answer for us, for you and I, as we ask the question, what then is the purpose of leaders in the body of Christ? Number one is that they are ministers, and the word minister just simply means servant or servants for the purpose of helping you believe in the Lord. That's the purpose of a minister. Number one is that they are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. God will use someone to lead everyone to Christ that receives Christ. God provides that. And God has provided for every one of us teachers and leaders that help us and meet us where we're at. There are certain pastors that are excellent, excellent teachers that I just don't, it does, God doesn't speak to me through them. 
the way that he does through others. And I thank God that he's provided people that can speak and that I can receive from them when they teach. But I also thank God that there are pastors that don't speak like I do or teach or think the way I do because they're reaching someone that I could never reach. And so God gives to every man according to their need so that their faith can be supported and built up and they can be edified in in him. He says, I have planted, and Paul planted the church and the seed of salvation in their hearts. He says, Apollos watered it, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Now, he that plants and he that waters are one and the same. In other words, there's no distinction in heaven's perspective between me who came into that city and Apollos who followed me and is now building upon the foundation that I laid. They are one in the eyes of God and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so Paul answers secondarily, not only are we uh, um, servants, ministers in the body of Christ, but secondarily, and this is very complimentary, we are tools. We are tools in the hand of God that he uses to build people's lives. Now, here's the amazing thing about a tool is that a tool is completely dependent upon the skill of the one who's using the tool. You could have an excellent tool, a saw that is so sharp, so precise, so perfectly engineered to do its job in the most effective way possible. But that tool must be handled by someone who knows how to use it. Or you could have a tool that's dull and weak. You could have a tool that's old-fashioned, that hasn't been thought through, and it seems by and large to be useless. Sell it at a garage sale for a dollar. Just throw it out, get rid of it. But if you put it in the hands of the right person, that tool can be more effective than the newest, most innovative and precise tool that's available because it's not dependent upon the tool. It's dependent upon the one who's holding the tool. And what Paul is saying is that whether it's Paul and he says, I was weak, base, my speech was contemptible, I stuttered, I was in fear. Paulus was eloquent and polished and confident It doesn't matter because the outcome is what God does with that tool and thus the glory always goes to God and it should never go to man. And that's what Paul is saying is that we are tools in the hand of God and it doesn't go any further than that. The one who plants, the one that waters are dependent on the one who can do the impossible and that is God. Because you can plant a seed in the ground and you can water that seed but there is nothing in your human ability that can make that dead seed germinate and come to life. Only God can do that. And that's true agriculturally. It is also true spiritually. We can bring the gospel to people, but only God can bring people to Christ. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit, and thus no glory at all can ever go to the tool or the instrument that God uses to build the life that he's building, whether it be by salvation, the planter, or whether it be by edification, the one who builds. So we are tools. However, we are not dead tools. We're living tools. We don't sit lifelessly in a box waiting for God to move our mouths for us. We have a part to play. And so we're servants. We are tools, but we are also, number three in verse nine, laborers. He says, for we are laborers together with God. In the New King James, it says fellow workers that we're fellow workers with God. 
For you, he says, being the Christians there in Corinth, are God's husbandry or God's garden or God's vineyard. You've been planted and he uses this illustration of a garden. And he says that you've been planted in God's garden and we are workers in his vineyard, both to plant, to build and to beautify that vineyard. And then he seconds the illustration by saying, you are God's building. And so he uses these two illustrations and he says, listen, this is what God has ordained is that people receive Christ and that they grow in him. It's organic. It's from the soil. It's, 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 it's something, you know, that, that, that's cultivated and alive that has roots and then bears fruit. You are also God's building that there's a foundation that's laid within your life. And then that foundation is added to with a a, a blueprint that there's an outcome, something that will come of the labor that's being enacted upon you. And so these things are what God has made Christians to be. Every one of us, we are a plant, we are a building. God's doing something with us. And the purpose of leaders within the body of Christ is to be God's practical hands and feet in the growing and in the building, the cultivating of the fruit of the spirit, the building of the character of Christ and the wisdom of God within a life That's the purpose of the leaders in the body of Christ. However, not all builders build equally and not all building materials produce the same outcome. So Paul takes a hold of this building illustration now and he develops it. Verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me. And don't pass that over because Paul saw that his ministry and his abilities were the byproduct of grace that came from God and not anything that was from himself at all. In Romans chapter 12, when Paul was talking to the Romans about service, he said this, he says, for I say unto you through the grace that is given unto me to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, even as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And what that means is that no matter what we do for God, whether it's to teach a Bible study like this or serve a a child or lead someone to Christ or to, to, to lead a home fellowship, whatever it is that we do, we do it by grace and not because of our gifts or our skills or anything else. It's the grace of God that has put us in that position to be what he's made us. And Paul says, I say this through the grace given unto me as, and this is what he, he saw himself as a wise master builder. And I love that. The word master builder, only time that that's used in the New Testament, and it means an architect and or a project manager. It means both of those things, that he's an architect and a project manager. And here's the idea, is that Paul said, I understand and see the scope of work that God is going to enact upon your life as he has saved you. I know what you were, I know what you are when you get saved and I know what God is ultimately gonna make you into. I see the blueprint. I'm, I'm like an architect and I can see it, but I'm also a project manager. And that not only do I know what it's supposed to look like, but I know how to bring it from what it is to where it's going. And to have those two things put together is extremely rare. There's a lot of architects in the world that can design a building and that can you know, scope it out and engineer it and figure it out. But there's very few architects that also know how to build the thing that they drew. Paul said, in Christ, I can do both. I can draw it and then I can build it. 
I was uh, a carpenter. I still am a carpenter, though I'm not active in the trade presently. But I remember when I was an apprentice and I first started out, I was working with a journeyman, a man very experienced in it, and he was very nice to me. His name was Dwayne Shute. He taught me a lot. And one day we were sitting, we were talking together, and he said to me, he said, Nick, he goes, I understand that right now, you know, you're all thumbs in this, and, and you're looking at everything that we're doing. You look around the job site, and you see all these people, steam fitters and electricians, and there's lifts and cranes and all this stuff. And he says, and you're just kind of in this whirlwind of, of, of taking everything in. He says, but mark my words. He said, one day in about maybe 15 years, he says, you're going to wake up and you're going to realize that you understand how everything works in this entire industry. And he said, you won't be able to put, it, put that on, on, a, on a, you know, a date and say, okay, this is the day I got it. You're just going to realize one day that, wow, I get it. I understand it. And I just tucked that away somewhere and said, okay, I'll wait to see if that day ever comes. That day came. You, know, you look at it and you say, wow, I get it. I understand how the whole thing works. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, I understand what God is seeking to produce within your life. And he, through the grace given to me, he's made me an architect of the thing. And he's made me also a project manager in it. I know what he wants to do. And I know how to see it done within your lives. But it's not because of me. It's because of grace. He says, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. You notice he didn't say, I am laying. Or it's in the process of being laid. He says, no, I laid the foundation of your faith that is to be built upon. And another, speaking probably of Apollos, but also of anyone else who's a teacher or leader in the body of Christ, he says, another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. In other words, Paul says, I've laid the foundation for you to become a fruitful, effective, mature, complete Christian and a fully effective, complete and mature church. But all I did was lay the foundation. Now that foundation will be built upon, but the outcome is still up in the air. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the question, he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' reply was, right, Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. In other words, the foundation upon which the church will be built, and thus the foundation upon which every Christian life will be built, is the foundation of the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who gave his life for my sins, and now my life is found in him, and it is completely owned by and controlled by him. He is Lord of my life. That is the foundation upon which my life is built and upon which the church is built, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. And Paul says there is no other foundation that can be laid, and I faithfully built a strong foundation of Christ and his lordship in your midst. But, he says, verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble, then every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire 
and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, let me pause right here and say this. At this point, there is a dissection in the direction of Paul's discourse. And here's what that is. Notice the words that are used there in verse uh, 13, the first two words of the verse in the King James. He says, every man's work. And, And it's important that we understand this that he's talking about leaders in the body of Christ and the work that they do in building the church. But what Paul does here is he makes every one of us accountable in the same way for our own lives as well. In other words, it isn't just, my faith is not just the outcome and byproduct of what leaders teach me. It is also the byproduct of what I build and cultivate and do in my own life as well. And what he says is that there are two different classes of materials with which a life can be built after they come to Christ. The first class of materials is gold, silver, and precious stones. The second, wood, hay, and stubble. And there is a world of difference between the two. Gold, silver, and precious stones are all things that are forged over time in the dark under the conditions of heat, time, and pressure. And it's all done in a place that's unseen. They're precious, they're valuable, and they endure the flame. All all of those uh, um, substances, gold, silver, and precious stones, carry with them those qualities. And they endure, they last. On the other hand, there is wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble are very, very easy to produce. All of them are produced above the surface. All of them are very temporary. All of them can produce very beautiful facades, but they don't have staying or lasting power. Isn't it interesting these days to be able to drive by a neighborhood? And when you drive by that neighborhood, you see that at one point there was just a road or maybe a road and one house. And then you drive by like six months later and there's like 40 houses And you go, how in the world did they do that? You know how they did that? Wood, hay, and stubble. (laughs) That's how they did it. And, And depending on how much wood, hay, or stubble depends on how much it costs. But isn't it interesting that a house built with wood, hay, or stubble, the price of that house is determined not by what it's made out of, but how big it is. And thus a house in the modern context that's made out of gold, silver, and precious stones can cost just as much as a house that's made out of wood, hay, and stubble. And that's kind of the idea behind the illustration that Paul is giving here. He's saying, listen, in your spiritual life and in your spiritual experience, what are you building with? What in the world is going on inside of you? Are you building upon the foundation of Christ with things that last, things that are forged with heat and time and pressure, things that are constantly being refined, things that are constantly being made more pure and that are being made more precious and more valuable? things in the unseen, and thus the things in your life that are seen are a byproduct of what's going on under the surface? Or are you simply building into your life things that are seen by others? You say, what what does that look like? How does that translate into what we experience and what we do um, in, in our spiritual cultivation in all of this? Well, the precious things that are lasting that God gives to us are, first of all, the word of God. God's given us his Bible. It says in Psalm 19 that his counsels, that his commandments, that his edicts, that his statutes, 
That every word of God, he says that they are more precious than gold, yea, than much fine gold. The word of God is gold. And as we sow the word of God into our life, we are building upon the foundation of Christ with things of gold. Faith. Because the Bible says that without faith, the word of God is null and void. That if it's not mixed with faith, it's without profit. It doesn't do anything for us. And so if we're taking the word of God and mixing it with faith and we're saying, God, I believe what you say to a point where I'm willing to build my life upon it. And so that then pours into a patient obedience of doing the things that he said. It translates then into surrender where more and more of my life is being yielded and laid down at his feet day by day so that he can do in my life what he wants to do in the unseen place. It translates into endurance through persecution and through trials and through the troubles that come, through the doubtings, through the seasons where we don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it, but we endure through those times because he calls us to. It it translates into the allowing of his pruning within us as he cuts away the things in our life that don't belong there, as he reasons with us and he says, let go of this, let me cut it out of your life. Let me do things in you. Let me grow fruit. You don't need this branch. Let me cut it off. And we say, okay, God, do it. It's going to hurt, but do it. And then we let him do it. And he, and he cuts away those things that we want there. And, and he grows discipline into our life. And what does it cost us to have gold, silver, and precious stones be the thing that we build with? It costs commitment. It costs some pain. It costs seasons where we don't know what he's doing. We can't see it. It doesn't make sense. It costs. It's expensive. To have gold, silver, and think about it. If you built a house with gold, silver, and precious stones, you would be paying for it because it's expensive. And to have a life that's built with those things will cost us something spiritually. On the other side, wood, hay, and stubble. What is that? Religion. To simply have an outward show of going through the motions, coming to church and just showing up. Legalism is wood, hay, and stubble. Building, building disciplines into my life that don't come from understanding. They don't come out of relationship wherein God's making sense of it. It's just coming out of outward show. Okay, well, I, I have to say praise the Lord because that's what they do in the church. So I'm just going to say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But you, you know, I don't, I don't know why I'm saying that. I don't know what it means. I'll pray for you, brother. I spent some time on my face before the Lord this morning. What? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, hey, but, but that's religion. Religion is sacraments. Religion is, is duties, but they're lifeless duties. They don't come out of anything. It's just because this is what I'm supposed to do. It's wood. It's hay. It's stubble. It doesn't last. Hypocrisy. Being one thing in front of everybody else, but being something totally different when nobody else is looking. It's wood. It's hay. It's stubble. Appearances. Methods. Reading books to better my Christian experience, but not letting it come from within. Reformation of my character versus transformation of my nature. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. To have a form of godliness, but denying the power of it, like Paul wrote to Timothy. It costs us very little if we want to build upon the foundation of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. We can do it with education. We can do it with common sense. And we can deceive anyone. It's very cheap to build with those materials within our life. I believe that plastic if Paul lived in the modern day, would be in the list of things that we could build. I believe much of Christianity today is very plastic. Much of the church is plastic today. It's the byproduct of methods. We were at Thanksgiving up, upstate, and I have a, a, um, an aunt who's dear, precious in the Lord. And 
And um, we were talking about spiritual things and about her church, which she's been a part of for uh, many, many, many years, but her husband doesn't um, come with her. And, and, and her husband has kind of indicated to her that if she would find a different church, that he might go with her because he doesn't like the pastor of the church that she's going. So she's kind of in this uh, dilemma, like, do I leave? What do I do in, in the whole thing? And so we were kind of talking about some of the churches that were in the area. And I mentioned one of the churches that we had visited. I said, oh, yeah, I left one of the times that we were up here. We went to this church. And, and this is what I said to her. I said, you know, I thought it was a, a great church. They, they did a really good job and there was nothing wrong with it. But my, my feeling there was that it was much more of a production than it was that there was really a spirit of, of reality, a spirit of, of Christ within the place. It was very plastic. And the thing that blessed me is that my father-in-law, who's really relatively new in the things of the faith, who was with us at that service, he chimed in and he said, I, I sensed that as well. That there was something there that, you know, everything looked good, but what was it? You know what that is? It's plastic. And it's so possible to build with plastic, not just in a church, but in our lives, the outward thing, what people see. But it costs to build with plastic. Why? Because whatever it is that we're building with ultimately is one day going to be revealed. Notice what he says next. He says um, in verse 13, he says that every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. Why does it matter what I build upon the foundation of Christ within my life? Here's why. Because you're going to need that structure to stand one day. The Bible speaks of fire in this context in two different ways. Number one is the fiery trials that come to us on this earth. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said, Do not think it strange, brethren, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. Every single one of us are going to go through things within our life that are going to test the quality of our faith and what we're building within our lives. And the reason why God wants our lives built with gold, silver, and precious stones and the things that last is because when the day of trial and temptation comes, we're going to need the strength of those things to stand. And so you're walking with Christ and you're sowing into your life by patient endurance things that are real and things that are pure. And then the trial comes. There's a sickness or there's a divorce or there's a family breakup or there's a tragedy or something happens. What happens to your faith when the fiery trial comes? That's going to reveal what you've been building with. Because if you've been building with religion and outwardness and legalism and hypocrisy and showmanship, then you're going to say, I gave my life to God and this is what he gives to me and it's gone. Rather than pressing in and letting the heat of the fire refine what's real within your life, you're going to throw in what's there and let the fire just consume it and burn it up. But if your relationship with him is founded on something real and you're committed to having the real, real thing come out of your life, then in the day of adversity, you're going to stand in the middle of that trial. And not only are you going to stand in it, but you're going to get stronger. And what's in you is going to become more pure, even if it looks like it's becoming more small because it's real. And the fire is refining the quality of those materials. The other context of fire is when we ultimately one day stand before him in heaven and all things are revealed. And uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, Paul says to them again there, he says uh, that all of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
that there's going to be a day that will come, that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we do, everything that wasn't refined and tried on earth will immediately be revealed for what it is in heaven. The motives, the secrets of our heart, why we did what we did, all of that will be revealed when we stand before him. And it will either stand for our reward or it will perish before our eyes. And that's what he says in verse 14. He says, if any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Here's what's going to be revealed in that day. Is were the things that came out of your life rooted in your heart and an outgrowth of that reality? Or were they manufactured by your observation and then your imitation of the things that you saw. All of that is one day going to be revealed, and that which was rooted will be rewarded. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Here's the scary thing about what Paul is saying to these people right here. These Christians that are in suspended infancy, he's saying to them this. He's saying, it is possible for you to get to heaven and for your reward in heaven to be no different than if you had died the moment after you gave your life to Jesus Christ. You wasted 50 years from the time that you made that profession and did nothing with it that translates into fruit eternally, the enjoyment of things heavenly or a capacity to understand and realize the depths of where you are or what you're doing. You wasted your life possible to do that and that you'll still get into heaven but you're going to get into heaven with something that you didn't even do yourself you you and not that anything ever comes from us but we're laborers with him how do we not have that happen because i don't want that to happen and how do we grow into maturity what do we do what's the prescription if we're not going to have that outcome if we're going to grow into maturity if we want to build with gold, silver, or precious stones. Notice what he says as we, we, we land the plane in verse 16. He says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The first thing that Paul gives to us in terms of the mentality that we're to have if we're to grow and if we're to endure and be rewarded is that our priority must be set in the right place. Understand this, Christian. The purpose for our lives is God's pleasure and God's glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. That the multitude of those around the throne in heaven declare before him when they see him, you, O Lord, are worthy of all honor and glory and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. We exist for his pleasure. That is to be the priority of our lives. God, you died for me and you call me to live in you. And so let the driving force of my life be that I am to know you and to serve your purposes. And if that's the mentality of my life, then I cannot waste my life in outward things and things that will be consumed. We exist for him. And that's to be our mentality every day. He says, you are the temple of the living God that the spirit of God dwells in you. A temple is a house that serves the purposes of the one who lives there. And if we are the house in which the Holy Spirit lives, then the purpose of our life is his purpose. And there is nothing more or nothing else than our will or his will, <laughs> not our will, 
that we're to live for. The second thing he says in verse 17, he says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The second thing that we're to constantly be in, if we're to be growing and if we're to be refined, is that we're to be pure. And that is that we're to constantly be in a place where God is refining us, where he's burning away the things that are of the flesh and where the things that are of his spirit are constantly growing and becoming more pure and more, more real within our lives. Now, God is incredibly patient, isn't he? And we have times where, we, where we, we backslide or we do stupid things or we ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And God is so gracious. He's so patient. But here's the danger is that we would resist the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit so much to a point where God would give us over to the defilement that we allow into our lives to a place where it would destroy us ultimately. And God says that if that happens, and that happens, we all know people that we've seen that happen in their life. They're Christians, they're believers, but their sin has overcome them. And we see it happen in their lives. God says, I'll own that. That's what Paul says here. He says that God will destroy. God will look at that person and when their life is destroyed, God will say, I allowed that to happen because of constant ignoring of my spirit. Now don't get afraid. That, oh, I'm struggling with something. No, no, he's so patient. He works with us. Here's the point is that you are either at any any given moment in your life, you are either being refined and growing pure or you are being defiled and growing more corrupt. There is no neutral ground in this life. You are either growing or you're backsliding. And the call is for us to constantly be growing, that we be giving more of our lives to him. So how do I do that? Here's how you do it. This is it. Are you ready for it? I'm going to give you the secret. This is the gold of tonight's Bible study. Are you ready for it? Here's the answer. You see that? Do you know what that is? It's an open hand. And you could place something in that hand. I usually have a pen in here. I think I left it somewhere else. No. I'll place my Bible. No, I don't want to place my Bible in it. I'm going to put this in my hand right here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this my sin or the thing in my life that's corrupting me right now. And here's the problem with this sin. Number one is that it will destroy me. But here's, here's the, the bigger problem with it is that I have absolutely no power in myself to remove this from my life. I cannot, you cannot remove your own sin from your life. There's nothing that you can do to do it. But what you can do and what we're called to do is to offer it to God with an open hand. And we say, God, this is in my life. Your spirit's been speaking to me about it. It's something, Lord, that I love. There's an affection. There's something in me that's tied to it, but I know it's got to go and I don't have power to do it. Please take this out of my life. And we offer to him with an open hand. And then that enables him then to, to reach down and to remove it from us. And that's what he does. If we go like this, God, take this out of my life. I'm so incredibly tired of this and I want it out. And, I, and I, I'm struggling with it and it's destroying me. Take it from me. And God goes, all right. Take it, God. Take it. And, and, and he says, I'm not going to strive with you. I'm not going to fight with you. If our hand is open and we say, God, I want it out, he'll take it out. That's what he does because we can't. So the call to purity is not, let's pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Let's search our hearts and repent. No, no, here's what he's saying. Open your hand. Lift up your heart to the Lord. Say, God, purify and refine. Take the things out of me that don't belong there and don't let me hold on to them. They're yours. And he does it. 
And that's what they were called to do. Number three, in verse 18, he says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. What is the third thing that we're to be doing if we're going to build with gold, silver, and precious stones? It's that we are to continually be giving ourselves to a study and a living out of God's word. That's the context of the wisdom that he's speaking of, that we would become fools to the world's wisdom, that we would embrace the wisdom of God. I had someone um, speak to me after our last study two weeks ago um, about the, the things I shared about giving yourself completely to the word of God. And the feedback that I received was that you, I feel like you set me up to fail when you called me to constantly be in the word of God because I just feel like I can't do that. It's not, it's not, real, it's not real for me to be able to do that. I'm standing my ground there. <laughs> I believe it with all my heart is that if we're going to grow, then it means to continue in the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I think it's verses 31 and 32. He said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And we're to continue. I finished up with my four-year-old going through the Bible. We finished the book of Revelation in the picture Bible. We got to the last page. I said, guess what we do now? He goes, what? I go, we start over. <laughs> and that's what we do. And I said this to my four-year-old son, for the rest of our lives, we finish and we start over and we continue in the word of God because the word of God is the only thing in the world that contains within it the power to produce what it promises. And the more we read it, sow it and believe it, God works through it and it's imperative. And the number four and finally in verse 21, he says, therefore, and this is the transitional junction that connects everything that he has said from chapter 1, verse 9, all the way till now. Therefore, in light of all of this, let no man glory in men. Get your eyes off human leaders. Let them serve their purpose within your life, but get your eyes on Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus healed a blind man. He put mud on his eyes, and then he opened them, and he said, Can you see anything? And the man said, I see men as trees walking. Jesus said, the job's not done yet. And it says that he touched him again and he caused him to look up. And he said, now what do you see? And it says that now he could see all things clearly. Do you see the picture? If your eyes are open spiritually, but all you can see is men and you have a horizontal perspective in your Christian experience, everything is outward and earthly, then you're not seeing things clearly. But if you look up, and your eyes are fixed upon him, you will see all things clearly. Our devotion must be to Christ. And here's why. Because when our eyes are on a human leader or a pastor or a teacher, then the outcome is that our endeavor is going to be to be like that person. And God will never honor that because he didn't call you to be conformed into the image of a pastor. He called you to be conformed into the image of Christ. And the call is to set our eyes upon him. Hebrews chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And when our eyes are on him, our endeavor is to become like him, and that God will honor. And so Paul says, get your eyes off of men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death 
or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You're in good hands and your eyes are fixed in the right place. And so in conclusion to this segment and and, uh, Ashley and and Taylor, we're, we're finished so you can come. Paul says to us concerning division in the body of Christ that if we are divided and carnal, then that's gonna cost us God's power. It's gonna cost us God's wisdom. It's gonna cost us our reward both here and eternally. And it's gonna cost us spiritual maturity within our lives. And that is a high price to pay when we could be so much more. Father, we thank you so much for um, what we've studied in in these um, chapters. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take the, the truths and the wisdom that you gave to Paul as a wise master builder and that, Lord, you'd lay those things in our lives as the gold, silver, and precious stones that they are, that they wouldn't be merely outward things that we hear, but, Lord, that they would come forth from a faithful heart, patiently enduring and allowing your work to be done. Please, Father, we ask you, Please, Lord, that our lives wouldn't be wasted. We believe that you've set us in the world for such a time as this. So may we serve you, Lord. May our roots grow deep. May our lives be refined. And may you find, Lord, when you come or when we stand before you, that we've been faithful in what you've given to us. And we're so grateful, Lord, for the hope that we have. You're so real to us, Lord, and we pray that your spirit would Breathe on us afresh. Whatever we need tonight in way of response to this study, may we find the grace to do it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.